Hi, Michaela. Hello. Today, I'm going to post to you some more listener questions that came through Instagram. We sent a made a post that uh, sort of shout out for questions, and we got quite a few actually. So let's start with those. So the first one is: Can age gap relationships work? And this particular question is saying where the woman is older, 15 years uh, plus. <laughs> That's a good one to start out with. Can age gap relationships work? Yes, of course they can. Anything can work. Um, there's a few considerations there. And of course, the first thing to be said is uh, men have done it for millennia, right? It's completely normal and considered okay for a 15-year uh, age gap between a man and a woman. Um, and, you know, bigger ones. Um, we all know people who had bigger uh, age gaps. And of course, why that's always been considered okay is that it's considered that, uh, you know, young, viable, beautiful women um, are um, essentially enticing to older men who have power and status and uh, uh, worldliness. And so always been considered okay um, in, you know, in the eyes of uh, people. But of course, when we then turn it around and we look at an older woman with a younger man, um, there's a lot of sneering and, um, uh, you know, he must be a boy toy or she must be giving him money or, you know, things of that nature. And that's, of course, not always true. Uh, mostly it's not true these days, but there is a bit more of a stigma around that, which is probably why this um, question comes up. And of course, there are some considerations that have to do with things like biology. It wouldn't work, let's say, if uh, the man in question wants children, several maybe, and the woman in question is, is on the edge of childbearing age or even older than that. So that would be a restriction for the relationship, obviously. I mean, uh, that can also be handled uh, in different ways. I know a woman right now, he's, she's 52. She's having a baby with her younger husband with a surrogate. So it's doable, but it's not um, kind of the easy, regular form of relationship if you want to have children within that age gap. Now, of course, that age gap is not a problem with somebody's 20 and somebody's 35, so to speak. But then you have other issues which have to do with maturity. So, of course, consider it. This is one of those, you know, big sweeping statement considerations that um, women tend to mature a bit faster than men in the younger, in the 20s. And uh, hence, it's probably not very exciting to be 35 and have a 20-year-old boyfriend. But it's certainly really nice if you are, let's say, in your mid-40s and you're with somebody who is in their 30s because, and this is where things have changed, I think, quite substantially, most women in their 40s and 50s and 60s um, are super vital and um, alive and vibrant and they found their place in the world and um, they have some experience and they've done the things they needed to do in their younger years and now they're actually you know happy to have an adventure and go and travel and maybe even explore new things sexually and and be challenged in a different way and a lot of men of that same age group or older are on a different page. They want different things. 
So more and more, we actually see that that's quite a nice combo to have a woman who's settled herself. She also kind of knows what she likes and doesn't like. She's probably not quite as um, jealous or reacted around certain things. And a man who's kind of in, in his prime and enjoys being with somebody who is a bit more relaxed, but also probably has some uh, emotional resource and things of that nature, or even financial resource, where she's not dependent on him making things happen. So that all said, I think it can totally work. Um, I think it's just, as always, super important that purpose of relationship lines up. We talk about that a lot. So um, if uh, purpose of relationship doesn't line up, then that's not a good call. And then the other thing, of course, is do you really even want a long-term or do you just want to have kind of a rebound situation or the fun or a lighter relationship where you don't live together, but you travel, you have a good time, you don't see that much of each other. So those are, those are of course, uh, in the purpose of relationship things to consider. But can it work? Totally. Um, I also think it's really about time that we kind of destigmatize that whole idea because things have really changed for um, people in relationship and also for women in their bodies and how, you know, we feel ourselves in our 40s, 50s and 60s and beyond. Wow, very interesting. We have a question here from Kitty. How to navigate jealousy from partners about opposite sex friends? Well, this is one of those questions where I would have to know a bit more from Kitty about why is the partner jealous, right? Because there's a wide range of things that could actually happen. One of which is um, the partner had, let's say, bad uh, experiences in a previous relationship. That's one, right? Where there was infidelity or there was behavior that caused, um, you know, some kind of disruption or pain or hurt or mistrust in the previous relationship. Could also be that the partner and Kitty had some previous uh, experiences where things just didn't go so well and the uh, partner doesn't feel uh, secure and, uh, you know, stable in, in the trust and in the connection. So that's an option. Then, of course, there is the option that it has nothing to do with any of that and it's just a possessive partner and then there could also be the option where um, there's some behavior that's not necessarily cheating but that's a bit extra flirty or uh, you know leaky so to speak meaning there's some snacking going on that the partner doesn't want to um, experience because it feels diminishing to the relationship or there's an insecurity so all of those are options and of course, there's different answers for different options. So I would say to Kitty, the first thing to look at is um, where is it coming from? Is there an actual issue? Meaning, are you deeply involved with somebody in a way that your partner doesn't understand, either because your partner doesn't have a reference point or it's out of the ordinary or there is some kind of old patterns either within the relationship or before at play. So that's the first thing to um, you know, consider. Then the next thing from there is to actually ask the partner, what is it exactly that feels off? And what is it exactly that um, 
causes the jealousy. Now, of course, if it's something like, well, I just don't like it. I don't want you to be with any other man outside of myself. Well, that's something to consider uh, perhaps away from the partner as in, is that reasonable behavior, right? Is, is the request a reasonable request or is it uh, a request that's a bit either possessive or overly dominant or based on some previous trauma, then you might have to get some help and set some boundaries with your partner around that, that also allow your partner to explore that for themselves, you know, outside of the relationship. But if it's kind of determined that it's in some kind of a murky area where your partner perhaps doesn't know what you're doing away from you, or perhaps you enjoy a bit of flirting, or perhaps you enjoy getting dressed up in a certain way and going out with certain friends in a way that your partner doesn't understand. That's often complaint, right? Well, you don't get dressed up for me, but when you go out with whomever, um, you know, you're all excited and you get dressed up and you seem to have a much better time when it's you and my me, it's sweatpants and on the sofa, right? That's what they would ask or, or would say when you ask them. So there's a lot in there and it's not always all bad. Like I said, if it's some kind of, you know, um, possessive stuff, that's a different thing. But if your partner genuinely feels that there's something lacking between the two of you that's happening with regular male friends, that's something to look at. Maybe there's some improvement that can be made that deepens the relationship or there's some actual complaint. And maybe there's also some way to explain um, to your partner why it's important to you to go out with your friends and what that does to you or for you and how that contributes to a positive relationship with the partner. So there's a lot in there, but unfortunately, I don't know any of the details, so I can't go uh, deeper into you know the specifics. Thank you. Okay, so a question here. How to deal with the desire for freedom and exploration outside of a monogamous relationship? Well, I think the first thing to say there is, I think it's pretty normal, right, uh, to have desire for freedom and exploration outside of a relationship, because no one relationship, regardless of how good it is, um, will fulfill all or tick all the boxes, right? That's just not possible in these super multi-layered, multifaceted lives we live these days, and also in what's available to us, right? We see a lot more. It didn't used to be uh, that we had access to all the information that might want us uh, to have that kind of adventurous life, so to speak. Now we do. So the question there is, um, and this is the most important question, is that desire for adventure and exploration um, of a sexual nature, or let's say of an erotic nature, however you want to define that or not right because there's all kinds of different um, ways to look at it since the questioner says um, in outside of a monogamous relationship I'm assuming it relates to things of the erotic nature and so of course within that there is a big um, consideration and that is if you have chosen monogamy and you have both uh, agree to monogamy, anything that you explore outside of that is considered cheating and infidelity and breaks the trust, right? So 
And the question is, are you willing to um, endanger the relationship and also endanger your internal integrity and the way you feel about yourself for a bit exploration and, um, you know, adventure? And that's the first question is, you know, do you really want to do that? And if you do really do want to do that, do you want to do that in a way that it endangers the relationship, meaning you break the agreements? If the answer to that is no, right? And some people sometimes feel, well, what my partner doesn't know isn't gonna bother them. And I just want to have a moment to explore and then I'll decide if I wanna open that topic um, and discuss it further. That's not necessarily an incredibly bad idea with the big caveat that of course, um, if you do that, it, it opens an enormous can of worms and it uh, creates internal and external friction. Uh, that's probably not worth it, right? Because also, uh, most people are not really that good at concealing those things. And here's why. And I, I want to just say that quickly to the, if people choose to not involve their partner in the, in the, let's say, first exploration. The problem with it is, of course, when you want adventure and a bit of excitement outside of your relationship, it's exactly that, adventure and excitement outside the relationship, your partner will notice there's no way your partner is noticing something because you are suddenly much more adventurous and much more excited, excited, and you're probably distracted. You're probably checking your phone a little bit more than you usually would, or you're behaving differently than you usually would. And there's a taking away from the relationship, an energetic taking away from the relationship to feed that exploration. Right. So that's one of the things that most people do that's a real problem. And that's what then causes the issue. Now, there is a school of thought. Um, not everybody subscribes to that, but there's a school of thought that when you do have a bit of adventure and relationship, when you bring it, when you have that, you can bring that back into the relationship and enliven the relationship. And that can definitely be true. However, most people in acquiring that adventure and relationship kind of zap energy from the relationship to begin with. Maybe they'll bring it back, but maybe they just take it all to where it's exciting and new and shiny. Um, and, you know, it actually depletes something. So that's a real consideration if you decide to do this on the sly. I wouldn't suggest doing it on the sly simply because you know it, it erodes all kinds of internal and external fabrics so if you do want to do it then you have a few options you can involve your partner by saying look i really um, want to explore certain things this is super important to me um, what are the perimeters of you know that engagement that's one way to go Right, that's a fairly adult and uh, fairly difficult conversation to have, but probably not a bad one. Um, the other option is to see if you can explore in the realm where you feel you have something that you want to explore without breaking the agreements of the relationship. So that's another option, meaning you don't actually have sex with other people. 
uh, or you don't actually, whatever that is, right? And you stay within whatever the agreements of your monogamous relationships are, meaning maybe you have some uh, friends that you have a bit of a flirtation with, but you know you're not going beyond that point. Or maybe you go on a vacation with some girlfriends and you allow yourself to feel what it's like to be somewhere else and be looked at as a single person or, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you could do it without breaking the uh, container of the relationship. But of course, that's also pretty hard because when it is very exciting and very new, typically people break their boundaries much easier, particularly if it's on a vacation, you know, it's in another zip code, so to speak, or there's some alcohol involved or it's a party or, or you're with people who are very loose with those agreements, then uh, then there might even be a bit of peer pressure. So um, it, it's a murky field, but it certainly can be that if you have really good boundaries, you could play within the boundaries of the monogamy, but see what that's like. But in an ideal world, it's probably a good idea to sit with your partner and say, look, I have these niggling things and itches and stuff that I want to explore. I love you. I don't want to ruin the relationship. Uh, but what are some options? And there's a fairly good chance probably that your partner also has some of that. And then if nothing else, you can talk about it. You might still decide not to do it, or you might decide to explore both and then um, come to some kind of conclusion, or you might set a certain boundary. Um, I have some friends here in town. They have the, you can flirt and, uh, you know, kind of kiss, but you can't go any further. Uh, and it can't be anywhere, anywhere near the existing circle of friends. And, you know, there's all these things that they have so that they can explore. Um, and then I have another set of acquaintances. They have a, um, you know, uh, you can do whatever you want um, once a year at the, uh, the trip to Mexico, right? Seems to work for them, um, but you know they have an established, really positive and and good relationship, which is the last thing I want to say. Right, uh, that that need for adventure could be, um, you know, just normal human development and desire for newness, but it could also be the sign that something's really not good in the relationship. So once again, super super you know, nuanced and we don't know what it is, but here are some options. And how might one tell if that desire is coming from, as you say, um, uh, you know, wanting to spice things up and explore new things, but in an otherwise stable relationship. And uh, it's just, it's perhaps coming from a place where the, it's a sign maybe that the relationship is itself not really working. How might one begin to parse that? I think one of the telltale signs is how much complaints do you have? Um, right. So meaning if you kind of feel uh, or even maybe you have some people with whom you talk about your relationship, some people do that, some people don't, but could be a therapist or a good friend or even in your journal or in your internal, um, you know, thought process. If there's a lot of 
um, complaint about certain aspects of the relationship, it's probably a sign that there's something amiss. But when it's that kind of normal feeling of wanting something new while feeling quite good otherwise, you know, the same kind of new that you have when you want a new restaurant ever so often or you want to go and travel or you want to experience something new on the weekend and that experiencing something new on the weekend, going a different restaurant or something isn't a, isn't like, oh my God, every weekend we go to the same restaurant. Yeah. But it's more the, oh, let's go somewhere else. We've been there so many times. I want to see something new. That that would be in the normal range of wanting newness and wanting new behaviors. You know? And some people tend towards more of that. Um, they get bored very easily. And some people, um, they're like, you know, pizza for dinner every evening, so to speak. Some people, when they're getting into a monogamous relationship or talking about their the patterns of their relationships raise the concern what if i'm just not built for that they'll say that you know could i ever become monogamous uh, one one does hear that actually uh, maybe i'm not built for it or or something like that and sometimes i have seen people go to great lengths to attempt to uh, become monogamous you know they, they hold it as an ideal course you're, you're not holding it necess as necessarily as an ideal it's one good way of doing it but there are good relationships that are monogamous and bad relationships that are monogamous but nonetheless uh, I have seen people really attempt to rein in uh, an urge to uh, be non-monogamous I suppose um, in the name of of, of, of monogamy um, I wonder what you think of that is that a good thing is that is that a virtuous thing um, is that uh, going against one's nature? Um, is it maybe a combination of both? What do you think of that sort of a, that sort of a, a situation? Yeah, I mean, there's reasons to be monogamous, right? Practical reasons, so to speak, to be monogamous. And practical, I mean, not only just one household, one set of partners, you know, one bank account kind of practical reasons, but also practical reasons as in how, you know, how much distraction or drama or, you know, outside influences you want to have and everything that comes with it. There's also real kind of peer bonding. Um, it's the two of us against the world. We're raising our children together without outside you know, outside gene pools interfering kind of thing, right? There is that as well, which can be super valuable and quite sweet. But, uh, and some people are just built like that. But then there's a lot of people who are not built like that. And in general, the thing to look at, and there's a lot of therapists, as you well know, because we sometimes see that in our work together with people. There's a lot of therapists who hold uh, people committing to monogamy and getting out of that urge or need or desire for multiplicity and adventure and excitement as kind of a maturing and calming down. And they see people as um, faulty or deficient or fucked up by their parents or whatever, right? Uh, when, uh, when people don't want to be monogamous. And like you said, I don't think that that's true. I think that um, different people have totally different needs in the way that they give their, um, to say that cliche, right? They give their gifts to the world, meaning giving the thing that they're about um, into, into a great context. And 
for some people, particularly more, not always, but often on the artistic end of things, right? Who are wildly creative in some field. They could be creative in business, but they could also be actually artists. But for people who are very creative, they need a lot of new and a lot of different input and a lot of different um, engagement. And that doesn't stop in the relational domain. That goes in every domain, for instance. And so to say to every human, well, your, your need for multiplicity is just a dysfunction and you'll mature and deepen into one relationship, I think is a bit reductionist and also, um, you know, it's just morally, it's grounded in some kind of moral belief. I think there is people who are just not built like that. Um, and, I, and I think the only thing to know is that if you're that kind of a person, well, I should say this, how do you know if you're that kind of a person? Well, if your many attempts uh, at uh, you know, kind of praying the, 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 uh, the need for several relationships away, uh, therapy, forcing yourself, all of that still hasn't worked. Uh, you might want to consider that you're not built like that, right? Uh, but it is also important to look at, is your uh, need for all these multiple inputs a way to kind of stay on the surface of things because you don't want to uh, have a deeper commitment. But here's the thing, not everybody needs to make this deep commitment. I mean, why, right? This is, we've fought so long and hard and we're nowhere near um, people being able to actually understand themselves and do the things that are actually not only best for themselves, which is a bit reductionist, but for their greater community and, and for their offering into that greater community. So you could in fact say, I'm just not built like that. I'm not gonna do it. Then the, the question is just, can you still have a relationship or relationships in a way that doesn't cause mayhem and destruction and pain and suffering from everyone you meet, right? And there is people who have managed to do that and there's people who have failed to do that and they eventually go, well, I'll give up, you know? Uh, so it's, it's a very difficult thing. And some people have made a lifestyle out of it, right? There's like whole polyamory movements where people have all decided that's what they were gonna do and they're gonna work that out and they're gonna use that as a tool to um, find out why they want that. Well, you know, it's one of many ways to kind of look at it. Um, however you want to work it out, though, you want to be uh, putting yourself and the people you are interacting with through the least amount of, um, you know, like beating yourself up and being down on yourself and shame and blame and drama and stuff like that. And how you typically do that is you clarify who you are, and then you lay that out very clearly and say, this is how I'm built. This is how it goes. Uh, this is what I'm available for. This is what I'm not available for. And then hopefully you find people who are willing to explore with you in that domain. Mm -hmm, very interesting indeed. In a future episode, we're actually going to, you and I, discuss what we've been reading. And in fact, that was one of the questions here. Someone said, said here has asked you, what, what have you been reading, listening to, you know, they've just finished your book and what should they read next? Of course, the answer is you should read the book again. <laughs> and this time underline things. 
<laughs> but you know, sometimes if you want to read another book, okay, I guess that's all right. And so we're actually going to talk about that. Um, we're going to have a discussion uh, about some of the things that you've been reading, and um, I, you know, I'll bring for some, some things that I've been reading as well. And one of those uh, books that I'd plan to uh, raise with you, and this might make an interesting episode in itself, hearing you discuss this theme or muse on this theme. I'll just mention it here as something of a teaser. It's a book called Solitude by Anthony Storr. And a uh, very interesting book. He makes the case early in the book that it's long been a trend in, say, psychology, uh, counseling therapy, etc. There's long been a trend to consider uh, a monogamous or at least, let's say, intimate relationship of some sort, or a relationship in general, actually, as both the metric and the expression of healthy psychology. So that one's ability to be in a relationship and is, um, uh, or what, what one, one, ha one having a relationship is in fact uh, the evidence of healthy psychology. In other words, it's an it's the ideal, and that not being having a relationship, say, on being single or or something like this, or deriving satisfaction from other avenues, uh, such as one's one's work, for example. Uh, or other meaningful activities is somehow aberrant. Quite interesting indeed. And so there's this, that assumption, of, and he, he discusses that assumption, and he, in his book, Solitude, he's making the case, and he uses um, geniuses of various types you know, of the past, and he says, well, this great poet had very dysfunctional relationships, or this composer, it seems, uh, didn't have much in the way of uh, relationships, or you know, detailing the relationship life of, of certain great figures who explicitly stated in their writing, for example, that really they, they derive their satisfaction in, in their work and, and, and what they're doing uh, in the world. So I think that's quite interesting. And so he proposes that maybe there are two possible means of fulfillment, at least, certainly. He was advocating for sort of broadening in the book, if I've read him correctly, of, of the range there and saying, well, you know, you can also have uh, fulfillment in other things than, than relationship? And what if that was the case? Yeah. Interesting indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really true um, that, you know, that gold standard of you're essentially only not fucked up if you have a relationship is blatantly wrong. I mean, and I can say that having been a relationship counselor for many, many years, a lot of people who come in with their relationships, granted, I only see the sick relationships, right? Not only, but um, who come in would be way better off not being in that relationship, right? For a number of reasons, but they're so dead set on making that one work that um, they might spend 10 years in therapy, you know, being quite unhappy, um, having all kinds of stuff happen. And then at the end, they go, whoa, I should have left 10 years ago, right? But um, I think that going away from in insisting that being in a relationship is the gold standard for mental health and is, uh, or, or emotional health is very, very important because it leaves um, an opening to say, well, yeah, maybe I do want to be in relationship, but maybe relationship model the way I'm a, that I'm aspiring in it, or maybe I don't want to be in that kind of relationship. And it gives, uh, you know, rise to a whole consideration around when is it time to break up, um, which the answer typically is way earlier than you want to, 
um, you know, or uh, way later than you think, meaning, you know, there's some people who cut and run immediately, and then there's some people who stick around for way longer than they should. But that entire area isn't really explored because it's such a it's such a stigma to be to break up or to have been broken up with or being divorced or actually not having a partner and being okay with it. You know, you're still a spinster as a woman, as a man, you're just a, you know, playboy about town or something, which is also sometimes not looked at as, as something good. And there are other options and they are not explored. And I think, you know, it's, it's been made okay for people to kind of abdicate all relationship and go, in the monastery, so to speak, in whatever tradition, you know, um, that is kind of looked at as like, oh, you know, they're seeking God, but what about just, you know, not wanting to go that deep in on the relationship level, but wanting to give all that attention to a cause or your work or an art. I think that's totally an option. And um, I think opening that discussion wider uh, is also, I think, a relief for some people, because I sometimes have people come to me and they think they should be doing something in that domain, that when you really, really start questioning them, they don't want. And when they finally can say, I actually don't want that. I had that. I don't want that again. Or I had that and it was good, but now I want something else. Or you know what? I never wanted that. And my last three relationships were a disaster because I actually didn't want that. There's a huge relief in that. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. One of the uh, counseling or psychological theories that one, one, one can see this happening, this idea of relationship as both the metric and the expression and indeed the evidence of psychological health is attachment theory. Yes, the assumption that well, the only reason you're not in a relationship is because you have some sort of um, dysfunctional attachment style. And if we could heal that, then you would automatically, naturally want to be in a relationship. And uh, th that that might be true, it seems you're saying, for some people, that healing of a dysfunctional attachment style will enable them to be in the kind of relationship that they'd like to be in. But for some people, you're saying it's not an attachment style problem necessarily. They just They just want different things. They have different priorities and different interests. That's yeah, very interesting indeed. Yeah, also there's different phases of life, right? You might want it at some point and then not want it anymore and then it again or have had it and not want it again. A friend here in town, you know, she had two very successful long-term marriages, um, marriage and relationship, and she just doesn't want to do it anymore. She just doesn't want to do it anymore. She wants something different with her life. And that's not to say that she hasn't uh, moments of loneliness, um, you know, for that kind of depth of, you know, hanging with somebody on the sofa, whatever, that the best part of real companionship or the best part of really good sexual relationship. But she says it's a small price to pay for the amount of sovereignty and freedom and self-expression and self-exploration she has now in her later years as a single woman. Right? I think that's entirely uh, commendable if it comes from a place of deliberate choice and not from some bitter abdication based on not seeing options. Right? One does hear another view, which perhaps I'll put to you now, 
uh, which is that actually life is not all about chasing one's own, should we say, satisfaction or or ideals or preferences or wishes, um, and that actually a great deal of satisfaction and contentment and meaning can be derived from uh, relationships in which involves some sort of sacrifice on your part. I mean, a classic example that people will say is, well, you know, having a family, having kids, yes, it restricts my personal freedom, but I'm part of something now. I'm part of a family. It's a relief, actually, in some ways, to have something other than myself to fight for and to orient towards. And so some people will say that that's, uh, there's something in that that's quite meaningful. And that simply following whatever one might like, well, I'd like to be single, I'd like to focus on this, I'd like to focus on that. That's one way of going. But another way of going is to really invest in, say, a family unit, a family situation, um, and, and to find some, some, some satisfaction and meaning in that, in those sorts of relationships. Some people will even go so far as to say, is that's the best thing to do. Now, that's the ideal. But you hear from certain viewpoints, well, that's, that's what people have always done. That's what you should do. Uh, it's important, you know, you shouldn't just chase your own, your own whims and fancies, you should uh, get serious, settle down, uh, this sort of thing. And it seems certainly that people do find tremendous satisfaction, or can find tremendous satisfaction in that kind of a scenario as well. So, so what do you make of that kind of a view? Well, I think that's definitely true, right? I definitely believe personally that being of service, um, you know, and not taking yourself so serious and not making it all about me, 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 me is um, hugely relieving, number one, right, for your own system. But it's also really, in a way, what we're built for and where a lot of love and satisfaction and, and, and fulfillment comes from. But I mean, hands down. Um, but for me, in w the way I look at it, when I work with people, when we work with people, when we teach, is that I always say this to my clients, you can't uh, renounce something you've never had, right? And that, that renunciation of something you've never had is something that people often do when they when they can't achieve it, right? It's like, ah, I don't need money. Money is evil. You know, money is the, money is the root of all evil or whatever people say, but they've never actually managed to make money, right? So um, if you abdicate something that you've actually not achieved, you're always going to have that niggling feeling of having martyred yourself or having just, you know, reduced that part of yourself because you couldn't actually do it. While... Um, when you have figured out who you are as a human, at least in some way, right, then your service isn't martyrdom, it's actual gifts and offerings and service, right? Um, and there's a fine distinction there because there's people who just martyr themselves um, because they haven't learned how to stand up for themselves, set proper boundaries, know their likes and dislikes. So their choice of that doesn't come from a place of freedom. It comes from a place of scarcity. It's not an abundant, you know what? I'm just not going to take myself that seriously. And I'm also not going to care that much for my body right now because I'm raising an infant, right? Um, or things like that. That's a very beautiful thing. But if, it, but if you constantly go, oh my God, 
you know, what about me? There's nothing left of me. And you have this internal dialogue of suffering around your abdication, so to speak. That's not good for anyone, not for you and not for the person you serve. It's not to say that you don't have a complaint ever so often, but the prevailing feeling of being given should be that you give yourself freely and joyfully and that you have um, great, you know, there's energy coming from your giving and not uh, a constant need to deplete yourself or suppress your real needs to suppress your real feelings for the good of all other people. And that's just something to consider. Now, you know, sometimes we don't have a choice how it goes, but when we do have a choice, it's nice to give from a place of abundance and not from a place of depletion and scarcity and lack and um, not being able to do it. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Perhaps one more question then related to this theme uh, before we close. Another skip in the record that people often express or objection or, or concern that people express in this area is they look at, say, divorce. You see it popular examples of relationship breakdowns and divorce, you know, in the news, uh, acrimonious splits and so on. Uh, but also, who, ha who doesn't know somebody? who's been through divorce, well, many of us do, and many times those divorces can be quite devastating for one or both parties, uh, financially, emotionally, etc. Uh, there can be all sorts of complications there. So I have heard the view expressed that the, 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 the fear of that is actually a strong motivator in avoiding, in, avo in avoiding relationship. Gosh, I look around at at what happened, what I've seen happen to some people in, in, in their, when their relationships have ended, they've, they've had some divorce or something like this, and it's been terrible for them. I don't want anything to do with that. And it puts, it puts some people off uh, getting into a relationship at all or, or going uh, beyond a certain point in relationship. That's something that one hears actually more and more. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, like you said, we all know people who have been absolutely devastated by their divorces, right? Um, emotionally, you know, to the point of near suicide, the children, you know, custody battles, uh, you know, people not being able to make a living because their alimony is so high, uh, people not being able to make, uh, you know, any ends meet because their alimonies are so low. I mean, you, 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 you name it, it's, it's insane, right? And um, I think that's a real concern as something to look at when you look at the construct of your relationship, right? It's not to say that if you don't get married and you have a breakup, it's not also very painful, but it's painful without the legal um, situation, right? Which could be good or bad, depending on where you sit. But the thing is, and this brings us back to what you and I have talked about plenty in other podcasts and courses and workshops and online courses, you have to have proper um, purpose of relationship conversations before you go deep in, right? It just have to. And I know people don't want to do that because it destroys their fairy tale um, illusion of how it is. And there's a lot of people when you say to them, just had this conversation yesterday with somebody. I was like, oh, we're getting married. And I said, congratulations, that's amazing. When, what are you gonna do? Oh, wow, blah, blah, blah. Are you gonna have a prenup? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. That's admitting defeat from the beginning. 
meaning. And that's such a bizarre um, kind of indoctrinated fairy tale, you know, thing. There's another word I was going to use, but I'm not going to curse, you know, because it's the exact opposite. Um, a good prenup, meaning uh, sitting down and making an agreement between two people who love each other, right? When you want to get married, you love each other as much as you, hopefully you have so far, right? This can also grow and deepen, of course, over time. But when two people who love each other sit down and go, okay, let's make an agreement. So when we are married, we both feel that we are married for the right reasons, we don't stay together because we are worried about the kids or the house or the dogs or whatever. Let's hash this out beforehand and then let that be kind of the, the safeguard against us making bad relationship choices based on um, considerations that have nothing to do with our intimacy, our love, our dedication to each other. So there's lots of people who stay together for financial reasons and they kind of muddle along and are, you know, deeply unhappy and resentful or whatever, right? So uh, when you then sit down and make that prenup, that will bring up the issues that actually need to be addressed, right? All that niggling stuff that nobody wants to talk about because, oh no, we are not going to be those people. Guess what? You will be those people. You know, when push comes to shove, um, you know, it's going to be, I just heard this this week as well. I had a week of, you know, breakups and things like that, that I heard about where, where one person said to the other, um, these dogs are mine. And once I get them, I have them, I'm going to drop them off at the pound and have them killed. Well, you know, so, and, and this is how people feel about their children. I mean, not dropping them off at the pound, but as, as, as tools of injury and leverage, right? You wanna hash this stuff out long before you get to that kind of point in a relationship where you're threatening horrible things to you know, harmless and innocent creatures of human and, and canine worlds, right? Um, so sitting down, making that um, agreement is hugely clarifying for the relationship. And when people do it and they do it well, it actually relieves a lot of that stuff and they actually talk about things, you know. Um, and I know it's not romantic. I know it's not popular, but it makes a huge difference and it will save you an enormous amount of relationship counts later on if you do this at the beginning. And, you know, funny enough, and I'm not saying this uh, to... Uh, support certain not so good parts about organized religion, but it used to be that when you would go and get married, you'd have to have premarital counseling by your priest or whatever, right? And of course, the question is, what does a priest know, a celibate priest know about marriage? Nothing, but the questions ask at least um, highlighted some of the potential rubs, highlights the potential uh, conflicts in the situation. What, you don't want children? You know, some people didn't know that till they actually sat down in premarital counseling. So I'm not saying a priest needs to do it. I think it should be somebody qualified, ideally uh, with lots of uh, experience in the field that you want counsel on. But 
doing that version of premarital counseling together with a good prenup, I think will alleviate that. And then the other option, of course, is you just don't get married. You do all the things you enjoy about relationship, but you just don't do the, um, the legal thing, which, you know, there's that kind of the, the spiritual covenant, so to speak, which is one thing. And then there's the legal thing, which is a totally different thing. So nowadays where we're no longer uh, bound by these conventions quite as much, some parts of the world, I want to say, maybe there's some other options around that as well. Well, thank you very much, Michaela. Fascinating uh, discussion today. And perhaps I'll take this opportunity to uh, remind people that uh, you can find out more about Michaela and the work we're doing at MichaelaBohm.com. There you can find all our latest live events, uh, online courses, um, even uh, self-paced courses and downloads and things that you can uh, investigate and explore. So that's www.MichaelaBohm.com. On that note, I, I think it might be good to mention we do have two on-demand downloadable courses, one of which is all the questions you should ask yourself to prep for a relationship or within a relationship. So it's this entire long, long, um, it's, a, it's kind of a toolkit, you know, it's this course where, or, or questions essentially, that you can sit down and write or discuss with a friend or discuss with a uh, therapist um, that kind of excavate your relationship styles and your needs in relationship and the purpose of the relationship. So that's uh, available. Uh, it's uh, on demand. It's in the online course section. And then, of course, we have the relationship course as all instruction on how to discuss the purpose of the relationship with prompts and everything as well. So uh, just as support material. Great. That's MichaelaBohm.com. Uh, Michaela, thank you very much. Thank you.